There's no one like Jesus. There's no one like Jesus. That's why most of us are here today. He's the greatest man in history. He had no servants, yet they call him master. He had no degree, yet they called him teacher. He had no medicines, yet they called him healer. He had no army, yet kings feared him. He won no military battles, yet he conquered the world. He committed no crime, and yet they crucified him. He was buried in a tomb, and yet he lives today. There's no one like Jesus. There's no one like Jesus. If you've heard about what Jesus has done for you, and it hasn't turned your entire world upside down, I want to suggest to you today that you've never heard what he's done for you. You might have heard it, but you haven't heard it. You haven't heard it. And today my prayer is that every single one of us would hear it for the first time. We'd hear it again and it would resonate in our hearts what Jesus has done for us. Not a nice story, but something that turned the world upside down. We're going to look today at the story of Lazarus, who many of you know. And the raising of Lazarus from the dead was Jesus' last great miracle before the crucifixion on earth. It was the miracle that was the straw that broke the camel's back with the religious leaders of the day. They just had enough. When he raised Lazarus from the dead, pandemonium started spreading as word of what he had done went through the city got down to Jerusalem. When the crowd is waiting for Jesus on Palm Sunday, they're excited to see him because they've heard about the raising of Lazarus from the dead. And they know there's a miracle worker walking among them in their city, and that's why they're there saying, Hosanna, excited to see Jesus, believing that he's come to save them. And Lazarus was the brother of Mary and Martha, who were followers of Jesus, and more than that, they were friends of Jesus. And this incredible account of what Jesus did on that day speaks with power to us today because it speaks of what he's done for us today. We're going to jump in in John chapter 11. We're going to start in verse 1. And it says, Now a certain man was sick, Lazarus of Bethany, the town of Mary and her sister Martha. It was that Mary who anointed the Lord with fragrant oil and wiped his feet with her hair, whose brother Lazarus was sick. Chron chronologically, that event actually happens in the next chapter. We'll see that happens in chapter 12, the famous story of her pouring perfume on the feet of Jesus that cost a year's wages and wiping his feet with her hair in an act of worship. That actually happens in chapter 12. But he's just letting us know who this Mary is. In verse 3, it says, Therefore the sisters sent to him, Jesus, saying, Lord, behold, he whom you love is sick. If you have your own Bible, you want to underline whom you love because that's important. And you'll notice that one of the things we learn first about Lazarus, the man who is dying, the man who is sick, one of the first things we learn about him is that Jesus loves him. We learn that Jesus loves him. And Lazarus is going to represent us in this story as well. Jesus is not with Lazarus and Lazarus is dying. Apart from Jesus Christ, you and I, like Lazarus, are dying. We're dying. There's not a single human being, regardless of belief system, who disputes the fact that our physical bodies are going to die one day. We all know this. What's debated is what happens after that. What happens next? Today we're going to talk about what happens. 
When you stand before a judge in this life, you are standing before somebody who has spent years acquainting themselves, familiarizing themselves with the legal system of the country. They spent years getting to know the law so that they know what punishment should apply to what crime and that they can judge fairly. And we've talked about this before. Every country's legal system generally is a reflection of the moral values of that society. Overall, we all agree that this set of things are wrong and there needs to be a consequence, there needs to be a punishment for those things. That desire for justice comes from the fact that we are made in the image of God. We're made in the image of God. And just like we desire justice, God desires justice. Now, our idea of justice is based on how good we are, right? I mean, we look at our behavior and we say, this this is a general standard. You shouldn't kill people. We think we can all agree. And we only agree on that because we have a shared moral value based on ourselves. So now imagine the moral value of a perfect God. Imagine what his moral standard is. His moral standard is perfection. His moral standard is perfection because it's reflective of his moral standards, of who he is. And before we start saying, well, that's that's not fair, that's not fair, you have to keep in mind, we have a desire and a right for justice in our society. If we are wronged, we want justice. But with God, we often say, well, you, you shouldn't. You don't have that same right. We only have that desire because we're made in the image of God. And as much as we want justice, he must have it an infinite amount of times more than we must have it. He has to have justice. His moral standard is perfection because he is perfect. And and when perfection is the standard, one violation is as disastrous as a million violations. Because they're both violations. If there's a standard, you're falling short of that standard wherever you are. You've fallen short of it. But what we like to do is look around us and look at other people and say, well, ah, I'm a better person than them. In, in fact, I'm a better person than a, than a lot of these people. I, I keep a list, and there's a lot of people that I'm better than. My neighbor down there, I'm definitely a better guy than that person. Definitely a better guy than that person. And it's really easy to do that, but to do that is to completely miss the point of whose standard we're trying to live up to. It's like having a swimming contest from Vancouver to Hawaii. You might get out there five miles and be like, man, a lot of people have drowned. I'm doing awesome. You're not making it to Hawaii. (laughs) Your reward for being so much better than everybody else is dying further out to sea. That's your reward. That's what it's like trying to meet God's moral standard. There's one standard, one target, It's not like academics where there's a grading curve in a class. There's one standard, and it's perfection. And we all fall short of it, just like we would all fall short of swimming to Hawaii. We have all fallen short of God's standard of perfection. tells us that in Romans 3, 23. And God has every right to punish us for these violations, just as a society has every right to punish individuals for violating that society's moral standards. God has the same right. And he doesn't punish us because he loves to see us suffer or because he's twisted in some way or violent. He must punish us because he loves justice. He must. He cries out for it the same way that we cry out for it in our society. We've all rejected God in our own way, so the punishment we should receive would be just and fair. 
It would be just and fair. And the Bible tells us that the punishment waiting for us is death. Not a single defining end moment, but death in the active sense. Death in the conscious, eternal sense of hell, which is a real place. You're awake and it goes on forever. And if you're offended by me talking about it, you are less offended than you will be if you end up there and you think, I went to church and they didn't even tell me. They didn't even tell me. Because you don't want to go there. You don't want to go there. And if you're not walking with Jesus right now, you're in grave danger. You're in grave danger. If there's one thing I want you to know today, it's that. The one thing I want you to know is not that you can have a fuzzy feeling when you walk out of here and think you're okay with God if you're not. I need you to know you're in grave danger if Jesus is not your Savior. And that's not something you can put off until Christmas Eve and consider it again. You're in grave danger. This is the state we find ourselves in. But the good news is that Jesus loved us while we were in that place, and he loves us while we're in that place, just as he loved Lazarus while he was sick and dying. That's the good news. He loves you. You're going to find out today just how much he loves you. In verse 4, when Jesus heard that, he said, This sickness is not unto death, but for the glory of God, that the Son of God may be glorified through it. Jesus is telling them the end result of everything that's about to happen is not going to be your brother dying. The end result of everything that's going to happen here today, everything that's going to take place over the next couple of days, is that I'm going to be glorified. I'm going to do something amazing. Watch and see what I'm going to do. He says, I'm going to do something that's going to leave people saying, Jesus is incredible. Jesus is incredible. He says, watch what I'm going to do. And he has the same plan for you and I. In verse 5, it says, Now Jesus loved Martha and her sister and Lazarus. So when he heard that he was sick, Lazarus was sick, He stayed two more days in the place that he was. I don't know if you caught what we just read. I don't know if you caught that because it doesn't seem to make sense. Read it again. Now now Jesus loved Martha and her sister and Lazarus. So when he heard that he was sick, he stayed two more days in the place where he was. As a contradictory statement at first. He loves him. So he stays where he is for two days while he's sick and dying. It doesn't make sense. You're thinking, Jesus, why don't you hustle over there? Why don't you find the fastest donkey and get over there? But Jesus is waiting for something. He's waiting for something. We're going to find out Jesus is waiting for Lazarus to die. He's waiting for Lazarus to die. It is very hard to perform surgery on a person who will not admit that they're even sick. It is very hard to give medicine to a person who won't take it because they insist that they're healthy. So often we we want a a Jesus aspirin. You know, we'll say like, hey Jesus, I know I haven't really talked to you in a while or uh, done anything that you've asked me to do, but uh, I need a favor. I need you to do me a solid right now. We just want a quick solution and if Jesus wants to do anything more than that, we fight him, we resist. We say, I'm, I'm, I'm healthy. Everything else in my life is good. Just this thing. I need you to deal with this thing. 
Jesus says, no, 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 no. We gotta, we gotta do something a lot more intense than that. Gotta do something a lot more intense than that. You can't receive Jesus into your life until you reach the point that you understand that you're sick. You reach the point when you can admit that you're dying and there's nothing you can do about it. And until you reach that point, Jesus can't really come into your life and do what he needs to do. You're the sick person insisting that you don't need medicine. You're at, you're, but you're saying, I, I'd like some health insurance though, just in case I need it later, you know. For those of us who know and love Jesus and worship him as our Lord and Savior, he's done this in all of us. We've all reached the point where we were ready to say, I need you, Jesus. I'm as good as dead without you. And I can't fix this myself. I can't heal myself. We've all reached that place. We didn't ascend to a relationship with Jesus. We descended in our view of ourselves and found Jesus when we realized how desperately we really needed him. And if you haven't reached that point, I know this. Jesus is doing everything possible to get you there. In fact, Jesus loves you so much that he's willing to let the bottom fall out of your life if that's what it takes to raise you from the dead. He's willing to let the bottom fall out of your life. Lazarus had to die before Jesus could go to work. You and I have to die to ourselves before Jesus can go to work. We have to die to the lie that we can fix ourselves. So you might find yourself being angry at God, thinking, what are you doing? Nothing seems to be going right in my life. What Jesus is saying is, you, you need me. You need me. How bad is it gonna have to get till you're ready to admit that you need me? How bad is it gonna have to get? So if you're in that place and you're resisting God, you don't have any right to be angry at God. He's acting out of love toward you to draw you to himself. In verse seven, it says, then after this, he said to the disciples, let us go to Judea again. This is where Lazarus is. The disciples said to him, um, <clears throat> small point, Rabbi, lately the Jews have sought to stone you. And you're going to go there again? Small point you might want to consider. Jesus answered, are there not 12 hours in the day? If anyone walks in the day, he does not stumble because he sees the light of this world. But if one walks in the night, he stumbles because the light is not in him. Jesus is literally telling the disciples, I'm God, okay? I don't not go somewhere because I'm scared people might throw stones at me. I'm Jesus, okay? I don't really put that in my planning process. Is someone gonna beat me up? I'm Jesus, you know? And you notice in other accounts, he shares a parable or does a teaching and the crowd gets mad and it says things like Jesus slipped away. He'd be in the middle of this angry mob and everyone decides they wanna kill him and he slips away. Because just like that, he can, he can just move and nobody can see him. He's not worried at all, but his disciples don't get it. So Jesus tries to clue them in. He says, oh, okay, let me try to simplify this for you. Verse 11, these things he said, and after that he said to them, our friend Lazarus sleeps, but I go that I may wake him up. Get it? The, the disciples still don't get it. Then his disciples said, Lord, if he sleeps, he'll get well. Jesus is just rubbing his forehead. And uh, it says, 
in verse 13, however, Jesus spoke of his death, but they thought he was speaking about taking rest in sleep. These guys are not poets, it's pretty clear. And here we see the patience of Jesus, as he's gotta be thinking seriously, seriously, and, uh, and we laugh, but uh, I laugh, and we can be just as dense as the disciples sometimes, just as dense. Jesus goes to work in our life trying to, trying to do things to draw us to him, and we say, well, I guess the only logical conclusion is that God hates me. Guess that's the only, only logical conclusion. Guess the only logical conclusion is that his blessings are for everybody else, but not for me. Not for me. And we, we look over facts like, well, well, are you, did you give him the keys to your life? Have you given him the throne of your heart? Have you, have you given him charge over your life? Well, well, no. Well, what are you complaining about? What are you complaining about? You don't want to give him control, but you want him to be in control when it works out for your benefit. That, that doesn't even make sense. I'm not walking with Jesus. Why are things going wrong in my life? How, how's that a real question? <laughs> I'm not walking with Jesus. Life just is not coming together for me. Can't figure out why. Can't figure out why. It's Jesus. No, that's not it. It's always it. It's always it. Years of counseling people Almost every time, the, you know, it doesn't matter what the situation is, marriage issue, anything like that, the question I'd always ask is, how's your relationship with Jesus doing? You'd always, almost inevitably get the answer, well, well, not real well, but that's not the issue. It's always the issue. It's always the issue. It's always the issue. We can be just as dense as the disciples Jesus will do anything to open our eyes to the truth. But now Jesus says, enough with analogies, let me be real clear. Verse 14, then Jesus said to them plainly, Lazarus is dead, and I am glad for your sakes that I was not there, that you may believe. Nevertheless, let us go to him. And I believe Jesus is that clear with all of us, if you read the Bible. He wants us to know quite simply, if you don't have me in your life, you're dead. You're dead. Speaks very plainly. That's what Jesus says to us as well. But he's also glad when we reach that point because that's when he gets to go to work doing what only he can do. Verse 16, then Thomas, who's called the twin, said to his fellow disciples, still doesn't get it. Let us also go that we may die with him. You just picture Jesus going like, oh, Oh, okay, okay. Come on, guys, let's go, let's go, let's go. He still doesn't get it. He thinks they're gonna go on this journey, they're gonna get stoned and die in a spectacular martyrdom. Still doesn't get it. Verse 17, so when Jesus came, he found that he, Lazarus, had already been in the tomb for four days. Now Bethany, which is the town in Judea, was near Jerusalem, about two miles away, and many of the Jews had joined the woman around Martha and Mary to comfort them concerning their brother. Now Martha, as soon as she heard that Jesus was coming, went and met him, but Mary was sitting in the house. Now Martha said to Jesus, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. But even now I know that whatever you ask of God, God will give you. Martha doesn't understand that Lazarus had to die before the miracle could take place. And the greatest miracle that Jesus can ever do in your life is raising your soul from death. It's the greatest miracle he can ever do. 
You might be thinking, Jesus, where are you? What, what are you doing in my life? And maybe, just maybe, he's getting you to the place where he can do a miracle. And he wants you to know, oh, there's no question what I want to do in your life. I'm just trying to get you into the right position so I can do it, so that you stop fighting me. Let me go to work. And Martha still doesn't quite understand that Jesus is God. In verse 23, Jesus said to her, your brother will rise again. Martha said to him, I know that he'll rise again in the resurrection at the last day. She says, I, you know, I, I know that when life is over, he'll, he'll be with God forever. She doesn't quite get it still. She, verse 25, Jesus said to her, I am the resurrection and the life. He who believes in me, though he may die, he shall live. And whoever lives and believes in me shall never die. The new life you're looking for, the, the eternal hope you're searching for, it's standing right in front of you. It's me. It's Jesus. Jesus is saying, I'm the resurrection. I'm, I'm the life. I'm what you're looking for. If I'm in you, your body might die, but your spirit's going to live forever. And if I'm in you, eternal life starts right now. You're going to change states. You're going to change bodies when you die to an everlasting body, but you're never going to die on the spirit level. You're simply going to graduate one day. You're going to be promoted. Jesus says, believe in me and death ends. Death ends. Where Jesus begins, death ends. And Jesus says to Martha the same thing he says to you and I today. Do you believe this? Do you believe this? And in that moment, in that moment, the Holy Spirit opens her eyes and she sees suddenly Jesus is God. Jesus is God. And that's how salvation happens. You don't have this moment where every single question you have about life and the universe and eternity and the supernatural gets answered. It's not how salvation works. You don't have this list and say, well, I got to the end of the list, had all my questions answered, now I'm ready to believe. It's not how it happens. You just have a moment that you cannot explain where suddenly you know this is true. This is true. And I know it in a way that is profound that nobody can take away from me. This is true. Holy Spirit has opened your eyes and you just know this is true. Maybe that's happening in your life right now. Just something inside of you is saying, this is true. Jesus is God. In verse 27, she said to him, yes, Lord, I believe that you are the Christ, the Son of God, who is to come into the world. And when she had said these things, she went her way and secretly called Mary, her sister, saying, the teacher has come and is calling for you. As soon as she heard that, she arose quickly and came to him. Now Jesus had not yet come into the town, but was in the place where Martha met him. Then the Jews who were with her in the house and comforting her, when they saw that Mary rose up quickly and went out, followed her, saying, she is going to the tomb to weep there. Then when Mary came where Jesus was and saw him, she fell down at his feet, saying to him, Lord, if you'd been here, my brother would not have died. And just like her sister, Mary didn't understand that Lazarus had to die before Jesus could go to work. Verse 33, therefore, when Jesus saw her weeping and the Jews who came with her weeping, he groaned in the spirit and was troubled. As we read right at the beginning, Jesus loves you right where you are right now. 
and watching the bottom fall out of your life, watching you go through hurt and pain and suffering, hurts Jesus because he loves you. He doesn't sit there and say, well, tough it out. It moves him. But he cares so much about you, he's willing to let it happen if that's what it takes to bring you to him and make you alive. Because Jesus knows better than any of us that where you spend eternity matters so much more than whether or not you're comfortable right now. It matters so much more. Just as the father had to restrain himself and watch his son Jesus Christ be tortured and murdered, so Jesus restrains himself and the father restrains himself when trials come into our life because he knows that they will draw us closer to him and that ultimately they're for our benefit just as the death of Jesus on the cross was for our benefit. Verse 34, and he said, Jesus, where have you laid him? They said to him, Lord, come and see. Jesus wept. Then the Jews said, see how he loved him. And some of them said, could not this man who opened the eyes of the blind also have kept this man from dying? They don't get it either. They don't understand what Jesus is doing. And if you're a believer, maybe you're looking at somebody you know who is not a believer, someone you care about. Maybe you're looking at someone who's walked away from a relationship with the Lord. Bad things are happening in their life and you're thinking, God, why why don't you just make it better and show that you love them that way? But God knows, listen, I, I could do that. But what would really happen is they'd go, cool, thanks God. We'll talk next time I have a problem. What Jesus is saying is I, I want to do something much deeper than that. So because I love them, they're going to go through this. Because I love them, they're going to go through this. Verse 38, then Jesus again groaning in himself came to the tomb. It was a cave and a stone lay against it. A stone lay against it. And this is the situation that we find ourselves in without Jesus. We are in our tomb. We're dead. And there's this giant weight trapping us there. And for us, that weight is the weight of our sin. We're trapped. We're sentenced to death. We cannot move that stone on our own. And one day that stone's going to be rolled away. And when that stone is rolled away, we'll either be called out to be judged or we'll be called out to live forever in new life. And that's the situation we find ourselves in. Then Jesus said in verse 39, take away the stone. Martha, the sister of him who was dead, said to him, Lord, by this time there is a stench, for he's been dead for four days. One of my kids' favorite verses in the King James, it says, he stinketh. He stinketh. He's been dead for four days. Without a miracle from Jesus, we would see him for the the first time when our stone is rolled away and the stench of our sin would fill the air and there'd be no way to hide it. It would be obvious that we are riddled with sin. We are decayed with sin. We would have no excuse standing before a perfect and holy God. It's like a, a child who has eaten ice cream or dessert when they're not supposed to, and it's all over their face. And they can't hide it. They can't hide it. That's how we are before God. Guilty, undeniably guilty. 
But Jesus is not afraid of the stench of Lazarus' dead body. And he's not afraid of the stench of our sin either. Because Jesus suffered and died on the cross. And in doing so, he was punished for our sin. Not for his own sin, because the scripture says he was without sin. He was punished for our sin. Everything that you see physically happen to Jesus, the beatings, the scourgings, the crucifixion, that was our punishment poured out on him. And just as Martha said, what about the stench of death? You might find yourself thinking, I I can't be with Jesus. I can't be with him. Do you have any idea what I've done? Do you you have any idea what I've thought? Do you have any idea what goes on in my mind? Do you have any idea who I really am? Maybe, maybe, Maybe I can fix this and then I'll deal with Jesus. Or maybe it's just hopeless. But Jesus is not afraid of your sin because he's already dealt with it. He's already dealt with it. And so Jesus stands in front of your tomb and shouts, take away the stone. Take away the stone. He's not scared of the stench because he knows that he's already dealt with it on the cross. In verse 40, Jesus said to her, did I not say to you that if you would believe, you would see the glory of God? Then they took away the stone from the place where the dead man was lying. And Jesus lifted up his eyes and said, Father, I thank you that you have heard me. And I know that you always hear me. But because of the people who are standing by, I said this, that they may believe that you sent me. Now when he had said these things, he cried out with a loud voice, Lazarus, come forth. And there's a reason Jesus didn't just say, come forth. The power of Jesus is so great. Had he simply said, come forth, every dead person in that cemetery would have come forth. So he has to be specific. Lazarus. Come forth. Verse 44, and he who had died came out bound hand and foot with grave clothes and his face was wrapped with a cloth. Jesus said to them, loose him and let him go. When you've reached the point of dying to yourself and crying out to Jesus not to just be your lucky charm or your problem solver, but your savior and your Lord, He will make you alive. He will make you new. He'll give you a new heart. He will give you a new mind. He will save you from death. And when you begin this new life, you you come out with your grave clothes still on. You're still wearing a dead man's outfit. You've still got parts of your old life, old habits and old ways of thinking that lead to death. And you've still got them on. And over time, Jesus says, let me get you out of those. And he brings his new life into every area of your life. The Bible says that the same power that raised Jesus from the dead is at work in us, is alive in us. That same power will bring new life to your marriage. That same power will bring new life to your mind. That same power will bring new life to your parenting. That same life will bring new life to your desires and your dreams and your hopes, and that same power will bring new life to your future. Scripture says that he makes you a new creation and that he makes everything in your life new. That's what happens when Jesus comes in. That's crazy hope. 
That's, that's the hope that we have in Jesus. And if you'll let him in, if you'll let him go to work in your life, anything is possible. Anything is possible. You're never too far gone. You, th- you think you're too far gone? Lazarus was dead. That's too far gone. Dead. Jesus said, I will make you alive again. You're never too far gone for the power of Jesus to bring you back from the dead. At the beginning of John chapter 12, we find Jesus in the home of Mary, Martha, and Lazarus again. John 12, it says, Then six days before the Passover, Jesus came to Bethany. He's come back to visit where Lazarus, who had been dead, whom he had raised from the dead, There they made him a supper, and Martha served, but Lazarus was one of those who sat at the table with him. Lazarus went from being dead in a tomb to sitting at the table with Jesus. That's the same invitation Jesus has given to every single one of us. He said, you're dead, but if you'll take my invitation... This story will end with you sitting at the table with me for eternity. New life, new body, new mind, new heart. I'll not only make you alive, I'll give you a seat at the table with me. That's the invitation that Jesus gives us. And he wants to know if we want to accept it. And At the end of this message, you're going to be in one of two places. You're going to be trapped in your tomb by the weight of your own sin, awaiting judgment, by a perfect God and punishment that he's perfectly entitled to give. Or at the end of this message, you will be walking out of the grave as Jesus calls your name, walking out in new, everlasting life. That's where you'll be. There is no middle state. You are either being made alive or you are dying. There's no pause button. You're in one of those two places. If you're not being made new by God right now, please don't leave here in that state. Don't leave here in that state. Don't say that nobody ever asked you, nobody ever invited you. Do not leave in that place. Don't leave in that place. 